The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Colette Kosner. She is the former executive director of the Domestic Fair Trade Association, where she coordinated collaboration between farmers, farm workers, retailers, and processors in the good food movement. Carlette is originally from the East Coast. She moved to Seattle to work for Yes Magazine, a terrific publication, and since then has served as regional organizer of Witness for Peace Northwest, communications associate for Cultivate Impact, and board secretary for the Washington Fair Trade Coalition. She is currently completing a master's degree in communication in digital media. Welcome, Colette. It's so nice to have you. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I wonder how you found your path to work for fair trade, and we'll get into this about how or what domestic fair trade means, but how did you become interested in the topic? Sure, yeah. In some ways, it's a roundabout story, and in some ways, it actually makes a lot of sense when I think about it. You know, I work with a lot of people who grew up in agriculture and have come from a long lineage of farmers, and that's not necessarily true for me, but I did have a lot of experiences early on traveling, and I was a Spanish major in college and had the privilege and the opportunity to spend a lot of time in Mexico during those years. And when I was there learning Spanish, um, I spent a lot of time actually in more rural parts of Mexico which was also really fascinating for me having come from living in like Boston my whole life and living in in cities on the East Coast and finding myself not only in a different country but in a rural setting. And in that process, I was meeting with and connecting with a lot of communities that had been deeply impacted by migration from the countryside to the city, to the cities to the border, to the border, to the United States, and learning about what were the root causes of why people were migrating from the rural areas to the U.S. And a lot of the reasons, right, were that these folks in the rural areas, these farmers, were not able to compete with commodity crops that were getting a term that we called agro-dumping onto their markets. So, Essentially, I was getting sort of this intense sort of first-hand experience learning about the impacts of the North American Free Trade Agreement, you know, which is a trade deal between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, which, you know, increases trade and foreign direct investment and exports, and was supposedly implemented to raise incomes and standards of living in Mexico, but the reality was that this agreement actually just made cheap imports from the U.S. just flood the Mexican market, and these farmers were not able to compete with the subsidized food from the U.S., and so their livelihoods were completely destroyed. 
In fact, we saw an estimated 2 million small-scale farmers from Mexico forced to leave the rural countryside, and many of them migrated to the United States. And so I, this is sort of how I, I came to a lot of this work, was learning about the root causes of migration from spending time in Mexico and hearing stories of what had happened to people's agricultural systems and traditional ways of life. And then coming back to the U.S. and seeing the massive immigration crisis that we have here, wherein many of our rural communities really rely on farm workers, many of whom are these displaced farmers from rural Mexico to produce cheap food for us. And the the sort of profound disconnect that I was hearing from political leaders around people talking about immigration reform but not talking about trade reform seemed really, really crazy (laughs) and, and, and disconnected. And those were the conversations that really brought me into learning more about the fair trade movement as opposed to the free trade system that we have. So this is where I started learning more about alternative systems of trade that are really based in the cooperative movement, that are based in in communities connecting with communities as opposed to corporations connecting with corporations. And really, I came to my current work with the domestic fair trade organization, really looking at, at fair trade here in the U.S. and Canada from seeing the the impacts that the fair trade movement in the international realm was having, right? That we, the consumers were able to find products that they knew were actually having a direct impact and a source to the small-scale farmer and ensuring that that, that farmers were paid decent wages and appropriate technology and gender equity um, and a whole host of other values that are propagated through fair trade systems. So it was kind of a a sort of a long long meandering decade of just trying to understand really the root causes of a lot of interlocking issues that I think are often just addressed in a vacuum in a way that is detrimental. I am so glad that you brought up the concept of immigration reform without trade reform because I never hear trade reform discussed. And the fact that you witnessed the devastation of what NAFTA did in Mexico, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the people living in Mexico and realizing that, as you mentioned, this term agri-dumping, bringing, say, I'm assuming commodity crops, perhaps corn and soy, perhaps cotton. You can help me understand better what crops were being dumped. But the fact that individuals that had to migrate to the U.S. to make a living, and yet when they come to this country, they're not welcomed with open arms either. Right. And and if anything, and not just not welcomed with open arms, but welcomed to be exploited. Yes. Um, and there is, um, because of 
their status, uh, for a lot of people's status, there is just a profound amount of abuse and exploitation that happens for our farm worker communities here. And, and you know, issues beyond just wages and, and wage theft and, and generally, you know, being able to get away with paying people less than a living wage, but also our agricultural system, because, it's, you know, it's conventional, it's industrial agriculture system, relies on a profound amount of pesticides. And we often talk about pesticides on food because of, we're worried about how those pesticides are going to impact our own health, but we rarely are we talking about the actual people who are the most on the front lines of those pesticides, which are the people who are, are picking and growing the food, right? Yeah. And they have uh, experienced, it's, I think farm work is probably one of the most hazardous jobs in terms of health that a person can have. I think I read somewhere that that the average lifespan of a farm worker in the U.S. is 49 years old, which is absolutely devastating and is not at all, you know, to me, that's a, a massive humanitarian crisis. And it doesn't get framed or talked about as a crisis That's because right. our system is so dependent on that cheap labor. Yeah. So I love your story and how you came to this work. And I don't know that, you know, in my world, I hear so much promotion of free trade and the TPP and how this is going to bring jobs and how it's going to be so wonderful and yet you're seeing and you have lived a very different experience. So what I love about the Domestic Fair Trade Association and fair trade in general is that it gives us an alternative, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I can kind of back up a little bit and, and explain a little bit more about what the Domestic Fair Trade Association is and, Good. and, and what it promotes in the world, too. Because you're right, it is, it's an alternative. And it's, and it's so nice especially when so much of our work is fighting against, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, to be able to have something to say this is what we're fighting for. Yes. And the domestic, just to kind of back up and give a little bit of history to the roots of this movement, a lot of this movement's founders and, and people who were really involved in its creation were actually, you know, also very involved in the organic movement in general, but also in like the, the founding of uh, federal standards for organic and really trying to get those standards to be much higher than they ended up being when they were first implemented. But also to say that organic is not enough in, if we're trying to create a truly sustainable agricultural system, that organic is one piece of the puzzle of which workers' rights and worker welfare are deeply intertwined, and to keep them siloed and have or, uh, you know organic certifications that are not also specifically talking about working conditions and wages and fair and stable pricing for all of those involved in agriculture is missing a, a real huge part of the story of how we change our system for the better. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our founders were involved in that, in the sort of fight for organic standards also then became pioneers of domestic fair trade. And domestic fair trade, in its essence, is saying how can some of the values that we associate with the international fair trade world, like 
environmental stewardship, freedom of association for for workers, fair wages, fair and stable pricing for small-scale farmers, specifically to support small-scale and marginalized farmers as opposed to big-scale, large-scale plantation farms, gender equity. How do all those values that we want out of commodities and, and products that we get from the global south, how do we get those values in our own backyard? And isn't there also something a little bit wrong about not looking in our own backyard (laughs) when we're trying to fight for a better system? Because we have horrible problems here, especially uh, in regards to small-scale farmers and farm workers. So, for instance, sometimes I kind of share a couple of statistics with people when trying to sort of explain to them the crisis that we're in, right? So we currently have more people in prison than we do have farmers in the United States. Yeah. Which is just just a really a sort of astounding when, when you think, it, not just because of what it does about farmers, but what it does about our prison, right. our prison system. But just in terms of the way in which this stakeholder group, this this sector has been depreciated over and over and over again um, in favor of the large-scale conventional farms that, you know, require less people on them but are doing devastating things to our environment, amongst other things. You know, just to go along with that, right, the average age of a farmer in the U.S. is 56 years old. So what we're also seeing is that our we don't have our new and beginning farmers really able to take up the farms from the older generation. And and so that's like that's also a really big part of our crisis, right, is that people are not able to find livelihoods in this work at this moment. And, you know, and on top of all of that, you also have all the other structural inequalities that find themselves in agriculture, right? So I think according to the latest USDA agricultural census, it found that 3.2% of farmers are Latino, 1.8% are American Indians, and less than 1% are African American. So you can see that people of color are also deeply underrepresented in, in the farmer sector. And that is also a, a, a huge part of, of the story of, of what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, you know, those issues that are going on for our farmers who are not able to compete with these large-scale farms is coupled with what we talked about before, which is a lot of the crisis that's going along in our, in our farm worker communities. Again, with that life age expectancy being so low, and just all of the loopholes in place that make it hard for farm workers to organize for their rights and to get decent working conditions and wages. Mm-hmm. So the, the Domestic Fair Trade Association says those are the crises that are affecting our farmers and our farm workers are deeply, deeply intertwined and that they are, it's actually very problematic to address them in a vacuum. Mm-hmm even though often farmers and farm workers kind of get pitted against one another. Mm. The Domestic Fair Trade Association is saying, how do we create space in a sustainable agricultural movement for farmers and farm workers to be in solidarity with one another 
and to be fighting, you know, fighting with each other for a better world, right? Because they do have a common, common interest and common goals. And it's just that our system has made it so hard for these stakeholder groups to work in harmony with one another. Mm. So, you know, a lot of what we do as, as a coalition is really just hold space for dialogues that don't happen in, in many other contexts. And our completely consensus-based coalition, and that is a beautiful thing, and it's also a hard thing, but, but what it really means and I think this is a really important part of the fair trade movement in general, is that everyone has a place at the table. Every stakeholder voice is just as important as another's, which is the exact opposite of what is happening in the larger scale world of trade agreements and free trade, right, where we see big corporations at the table. We do not see actually most directly impacted by these agreements at the table. Exactly. And, and, you know, fair trade and domestic fair trade, it's about having the most directly impacted have their say and have, have, a, have a voice in creating a better future. Right. Let me take one break here and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by... Ms. Colette Cosner, who is the former executive director of the Domestic Fair Trade Association. And I should say that you are going to be working in the future still on this issue, but you're going to be working more on telling these important stories. The story that I want to bring to our listeners at this point is this what can we do position where people realize there's injustice we want to make a change, we want to make a difference, what can we do? And I know that the Domestic Fair Trade Association has a wonderful guide on labels and recognizing that we are inundated by labels. We have no idea which ones are valid or which ones are best for workers. And so you've got a website on social justice certification claims. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Take me to the marketplace and empower me as a buyer to help the individuals who are producing the food or the goods. Mm, absolutely. That's a great question. So one of the things that has always been a really important part of the Domestic Fair Trade Association's work has been what we call the Fair Facts Program. And it's had a lot of different sort of iterations over the years, but the long and short of it is that, like I said, because so many of our people were involved in the organic movement and are involved in the organic movement, we saw the sort of wild west of labeling happen in the organic movement where you had different organic labels out there that meant different things, had various levels of integrity, and it was very confusing for consumers. So consumers want to do the right thing, and in fact, you know, we, we worked a little bit with Consumer Reports last year, and, and they put out an incredible report about the ways in which consumers are ready for, are really, really ready for more organic food and for concepts like fair trade and willing to pay more 
than and willing to really pay the price of actual food. But, you know, we have to figure out how to meet consumers where they are, right? Because we have all of these labels out here and it's really a confusing place for the consumer to try to make an educated choice. And so one of the things that we've done is we've taken a look at the landscape of domestic fair trade claims, but also a couple of fair trade certification programs too from the international realm and used our principles, which we think are really sort of high bar principles in part because they were agreed upon by all the stakeholders of our organization, right? You know, our farmers and our farm workers and retailers and processors and NGOs came together to, through consensus, to, to, to have these principles in common. And so they have actually are a really good benchmark for taking a look at the way different certification programs do or do not address those principles. And so... Yeah, our evaluations out there are, um, they are a guide for people, but we also like to say, you know, that, that while there are certain certifications out there that you should look for and maybe some that you should sort of be more wary of, I think the overarching message of a lot of our organization and the folks in our movement is that it's not a brand, it's a movement, and that we can't just buy our way out of it. <laughs> you know, and that look, supporting things like domestic fair trade via looking for those kinds of products that have that label or, you know, being an informed consumer is absolutely important, but more so is is what it means to be what we call an educated citizen eater. Yes. <laughs> Meaning you are taking part in in things like opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which you had mentioned before, you know, is it's this big, huge trade agreement. It's, it's called the NAFTA on steroids, the North American Free Trade Agreement on steroids. So that experience I had in, in Mexico of, of seeing this incredible agri-dumping into the Mexican market and the impact that that had on small-scale farmers, just imagine that <laughs> times a million, you know, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we need our consumers not just to be buying the products, but to be going to their representatives and saying, hey, you know, this piece of legislation is going to have a profound impact on our agricultural system in a way that is really detrimental to the, to the small-scale, sustainable farms, to our ability to buy local, to our ability to not just buy organic and local, but to know what's in our food, GMO labeling is also, you know, an impact and part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So we need people to be engaged on the political level as well as in the supermarket and also to, to support a lot of the worker struggles for things like minimum wage increase. Right. Uh, I think there's a, a really, really important voice for consumers to play in raising standards of living throughout the food system. Without campaign finance reform, do you think that our voices matter? I do. I think campaign finance reform is incredibly, incredibly important and is also one of those deeply interconnected issues into yeah. all of this. When you when you learn about who some of the larger 
food corporations are that are donating money to our yeah. <laughs> you know to our elected officials it is really scary and makes you sort of see how all of this is is, is deeply interconnected mm-hmm. but at the same time i think that there's an you know, especially if things get really stalled out on the federal level, I think there's some really incredible and, and hopeful things happening on municipal levels and on city levels and statewide levels where people are able to have a little bit more control over their political voice. Some examples of that that I think are really exciting are things like the good food purchasing policies that we've seen L.A. pass, and we've also seen, I believe, Chicago either recently passed it or is gearing up to pass one. And these are creating ways for institutional buyers to really connect with the good food movement and to meet certain important standards around quality of food and where it was sourced from, hopefully ethically. And I think... So that's, I think, where I see our voice having power is is people getting involved in the local fight mm-hmm. uh, for changing our food system. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that you are working on digital media and using that as a tool. And I was recently at a Bioneers conference where it was reinforced that if we want to change policies, which is exactly what really needs to happen, as you've so well outlined with regard to trade and immigration and where those points connect, but this idea of using art to change our culture, which ultimately will move to change our policy, and I wonder about your future direction, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your next steps and what you see as your vision for taking us away from this exploitive environment and moving us towards one that is more fairly traded and more fair. I think you said it really beautifully yourself. I I think story is so incredibly important. You know, I could sit here and I obviously already did just spit a bunch of, you know, facts and figures out you, but People don't make behavior change until there's a real emotional connection to a story. And it's really, um, you know, when I think about the times that I've been the most moved by and wanting to make change, right, when I met one person whose life story about being impacted by trade agreements really was incredibly, you know, damaging to, to their livelihood and I wanted to change it because of that one person's story as opposed to talking about, you know, the huge big picture of global politics and trade, which are very, very daunting and very confusing. Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think the story of the individual is how, you know, we ultimately create change. I agree. I think that trade policy conversations tend to get people's eyes to glaze over pretty quickly, but there's nothing like the personal story. So, We need to wrap up here, but I just want to thank you so much. We've been speaking with Colette Cosner, and she is the former executive director of the Domestic Fair Trade Association. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at Kopian Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We will provide websites if you're interested in the labels and what they mean. And these labels will touch on the values of domestic fair trade. That's simply at http 
colon double backslash Fairfax dot T-H-E-D-F-T-A dot org. That's DomesticFairTradeAssociation.org. Again, thank you so much, Colette, for being my guest, for doing this work. And I look forward to seeing your stories in video form. Oh, thank you so much. It was really great chatting with you.